Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. for um, everyone's um, flexibility and your understanding as we uh, go through whatever might happen today. Um, I believe that the Lord is covering us, but just just isn't it? FYI, doesn't this underscore with all the things that can go wrong with online service, doesn't that underscore uh, the need to, for us to meet in person again? Um, if you guys are not vaccinated, now is the time to get vaccinated. I believe when church opens up, which is very soon, very soon, if you're not vaccinated, you might not be let in, y'all. So get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. That's all I have to say, okay? Um, we, got, we got old people. We got, our, we got our, our mothers and our fathers of faith that we'll be attending worship with as well. So anyway, happy June. It is June. This needs to end. It is June. And it is. It's ending. It's ending. Oh, stop freaking out. Okay, yes. Um, but it's June 6th, and we are in our third week of our four-part sermon series through Esther. So if you guys can open up your Bibles with me to Esther. Esther. We will be reading Esther chapter 5. Through 6 verse 11. So this is going to be a long one, but I really think that every single verse is not something to be wasted this week. And so we're just going to read through Esther chapter 5 through 6. Um... So just lock in and and try to listen to it as though it's a story. But we are still reading God's word, God's holy and perfect word. So although we are not joining together and rising together, uh, please hold God's word with all due reverence. Right now is the time to pay attention. Don't fidget. Um, Don't look away. Don't be distracted. This is the time to pay attention. This is the word of the Lord. Esther chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today for a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king says, Bring Haman quickly, so we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther prepared. And while as they were drinking wine after the feast, the the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife Zeres and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And the Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man in whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do, do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, may your presence fill this room. I pray for protection 
over every single heart in this ministry right now. Father God, I pray that your presence would be known. Abba, we fear nothing other than you. So Jesus, we just pray that every principality, every power of every element fall before the feet of Jesus right now. God, as we open up your word and as we hear about Esther, we pray that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the knowledge of God, the providence of God be struck into the hearts of your people, whether they are listening or they are not. God, that they would all of a sudden at once be aware that this is the time to worship the Lord. Abba, I pray for hearts to be silenced and sounds to be silenced and every element of reality to be suspended before the word of God. We believe in who you are and we give glory and honor where it is due. So Jesus, hide us behind your cross that only you are magnified and glorified. May your word hit us right in the middle of our hearts. God, that we would see your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm gonna try to fly through this just in case something else beeps. Um, and <laughs> you know, this is quite, this is where the story of Esther becomes interesting. And what I really like about the story of Esther is that it's really written to be like a play. Um, it's like there are scenes, there's action, there's dialogue, there's so many details. Um, and we, we find ourselves, you know, last week we talked about how Esther rose to the occasion, rose to the identity that God had for her, where she was turned away from the identity that she had created for herself, the use that she had set out for herself, and she was struck with the reality of who God had created her to be, what purpose God had destined her to be. And as we were confronted with Esther's identity, we were confronted with our own. And that was last week, and now we are found in Esther chapter five, right after the three days, the belly of her fish. After the three day fast, where all the Jews come and fast, Esther visits the king, risking her life. The interesting thing about these words is that it says that she puts on royalty and she goes to the king's house of royalty and his throne of royalty. The word royalty is used three times and the word king is used three times entering into the king's world as someone who is said to have to die. Clearly, it's, it's made clear here that she literally puts on her royalty. It's the other part of her life, the non-Jew part of her life, the part of her life that she doesn't know how she got here, the part of her life where her identity in Christ is hidden. She enters into the king's world. She stands in the inner court. She doesn't necessarily approach the king, but the king receives her as the exception to her rule, and he puts out his golden scepter. Now, this is a moment, I know I'm explaining it like very like, you know, one thing after another, but this is a moment of high tension. If you can imagine, she is waiting to hear, what are you doing here to come out of the king's mouth? Esther is prone to win favor, but the king is volatile. And at any point, the person that the king loves will be the very person that the king deposes. There's no saying what the king will do next. After all, the king was willing to kill off a whole people with the swift, like the flick of a hand at the request of 
his subordinate's personal vendetta. This man isn't necessarily a man of morals. All he is is really a man of power, and he delights to be honored. So she stands in the inner court. She heeds her own warning. She doesn't approach the king. The king receives her as the exception to his rule, and he puts out the golden scepter. It's surprising and not surprising and relieving all at the same time. I imagine like music, if this were like an actual movie, the music would be hella intense. Just this part of the story would be drawn out like crazy. But the king doesn't actually see her distress. Now she approaches him and he didn't intend to approach her. So he expects her to want something. He says, what do you want? She says, I wish to honor you with the feast. So she, the king and Haman eat together. Now imagine that. Imagine eating with the guy that's trying to kill off your family. I always have this saying with my friends. My friends, um, whenever, you know, people are afraid to cry, I get this a lot. I know, I, I know I look a little scary, but sometimes, you know, Grace likes to say, she likes to say this thing where <laughs> she's like shaking her head. No, I'm so sorry, Grace. But she likes to say this thing where she's like, I would never want to mess with Jane. I would never, ever want to cross Jane up. Like, if there's anybody in the world I would never want to mess with, it's Jane. I would never want to see Jane angry. And I always tell Grace, in order to comfort her, I always tell her, you would literally have to kill my family. <laughs> Don't worry, Grace. Like, I'm still going to love you no matter what. We are friends. I love you deeply. And you are dear to my heart. You would literally have to kill my family. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for mentioning this. She always, like, she hates it when I say it. She's like, why do you mention it? Oh, my God. Right? Um, but that is literally Esther's reality. I'm so sorry, Grace. I'm so sorry. So, so sorry, Yona. But, like, literally, that is Esther's reality. She has to eat with the guy who's trying to kill off her whole people. Granted, this people is traumatized. They're in exile. Okay? They've been plundered. They've been taken over. They've been enslaved. And now they're about to die via genocide. And she has to eat with the guy that's doing that. And the king says once more at the feast, he goes, what do you want, Esther? Anything is yours. He basically says, the, the, idi the idiomatic saying that he says here, that half the kingdom is yours, somebody's trying to get in. Um, half the kingdom is yours is, is an is a idiom that's like, have what you like and do what you please. It's kind of like, do whatever you want. Like, I'll, everything is yours. Just ask, ask. And Esther we all think this is the moment. She's finally taking them out to dinner. This is the moment of truth. She goes, if you, if it pleases the Lord, if it pleases my king, would you join me on a feast one more time? And there I will tell you. It's flattery to flattery by suggesting that she wants to honor Xerxes or Ahasuerus with a banquet, appealing to his ego. And there's a lot, there's a lot of like, it's lost in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, there's a lot of like, the tension is built and then it's released and it's built and it's released. And we think that this is gonna be the moment of climax in this book, but actually it's not. It's not the moment of climax. There's this expectation that this is gonna be the moment where the people of Israel are gonna be saved. But that's not what happens here. However, Esther does do something really interesting. 
she makes it so that the king cannot refuse and makes it seem like she's under his will at the same time. So she does this thing with her words where she twists the situation ever so slightly so that the king is still in complete power, but also so that it's an offer that knowing the king, he can't refuse. Appealing to his ego, of course, works immediately. And we see here Esther grow. This is the first time we see Esther grow. If, if we can liken it to a movie, we see this diamond in the, in the rough as the plot de deepens, the character complexifies, right? He becomes more complex. And the leader in the making, a diamond in the rough. Now, keep in mind, Esther was somebody that was humiliated. Her body was used by the king. Her plans for her life didn't matter. But now we see her really owning into this identity as queen. A woman that was not perfect. A woman that wanted to run away from her identity in Christ. But God knew her and he saw her and he saw her potential. Oftentimes we look at people and we judge them. We might find ourselves judging people for what they have done. But God sees us for what he has created us to be. What joy is that? That, like, that boggles my mind. Even in the middle of your sin, even in the middle of your brokenness, he doesn't just see you as the way, the, the low self-esteem that you have for yourself, the way that you see yourself as useless, the way you see yourself as not really worth much. God doesn't see you like that. At your most insecure, at your lowest, God doesn't see you like that. And we see here that God saw Esther and he built her into this identity. And the second she starts living into, not what she has planned out for herself, but what God has planned out for her, literally the second she owns up to it, Esther begins to grow. Esther begins to grow. We see Esther finally stepping, not into what she wants to do, but what God has for her. Now you might wonder, Jane Doe, why, why, why did Esther delay here? You know, why, why would Esther delay? I mean, she's fasted for three days. Does she not trust God? Like, don't, aren't y'all on a time crunch? People is about to die. Like, why would she delay? Esther has read the decree for herself, so she's bidding her time. She knows that she has time to play with. But this is difficult because the Jews have already been waiting three days. And so we see here the beginnings of Esther living into what God has for her. And then there's Mordecai and Haman. So as Esther is stepping into all that God has created for her, Haman is still pissed off by Mordecai. And we see because Haman is like in such good spirits, he's been honored, he's been lifted up, he's so glorified, right? And he's in such good spirits. But the second he sees Mordecai not honor his status, he gets butthurt again. So he calls up all his friends and his wife. He's like, why doesn't this guy honor me? I am power. I am the king's right hand man. Why doesn't this guy bow to me? And we see here literally, you know when somebody like really gets under your skin? Like 
Mordecai not bowing down to Haman makes Haman go crazy. Literally crazy. He brags to everyone, but he's ultimately obsessed with his enemy. And so his wife and friends, knowing that his anger is not going to dissipate even if Mordecai dies, they advise him to publicly humiliate him in his death. And he hears that and he's like, that's the best idea I've ever heard. And he starts to make the gallows and he finishes making the gallows that day. That's a lot. Uh, 50 cubits, it's said to be more than seven feet high. Uh, it's really tall. And that's made in one day. Like that's dedication. Not to Mordecai, but to himself. You know what I'm saying? Um, and we see here that such a maniacal need for honor and respect that's coupled with power is often coupled with power to conceal a fragile ego. He reminds me of one of those broskies. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the, you know those guys that are like hella buff, but the second you say, hey, you're kind of small, that person, you literally see that person shrivel away in front of your very eyes. Just kidding. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with being buff. Uh, absolutely nothing at all. But I, I just imagine like you've built yourself up for this very moment and one person doesn't acknowledge you and you shrivel. Guys, come on. That's not strength. That's fragility, right? Um, and so he makes this, these gallows and we see the, at the same time that we see Esther's depth increase, we see Haman become as thin as a slice of cheese or a piece of paper. Um, and then we see the plans of Haman be confronted by the will of God. I'm going to point out four coincidences that are not necessarily coincidences, okay? This is the turning point in the story of Esther. After plan, after plan, after plan, after plan, y'all would think that the turning point of the story of Esther is Esther saying, he's gonna kill the Jews. No, the turning point of Esther it's actually in chapter five, and it's these four coincidences. All of a sudden, the king is, number one, unable to sleep. The Septuagint translates that into Greek as the Lord took sleep from the king that night. That's coincidence number one. Coincidence number two, in order to fall asleep, the king has the daily court record read. Who the heck does that? Who? I am not listening to an audiobook of the New York Times when I cannot fall asleep. Like that is not what I choose to do with my day, okay? There are a lot of things that I choose to do. That is not one of them, okay? Um, the king has the daily court record read and then he discovers that Mordecai had revealed the attempt to assassinate him, which is coincidence number two. Ascertains from his attendants that Mordecai has received no reward for this, coincidence number three. So let me get this straight. The king cannot sleep. So he has the court record read to him. Okay. And then when the court record is read to him, he figures out that Mordecai was not honored. He asks, he doesn't even have to dwell on that. Why should the king care? But he goes, hey, I haven't heard this name. Was this man honored for this? The court, his people say, no, he was not.
And then, in the middle of his distress, that this man who saved his life was not honored, he goes and he asks, who's out there? Y'all, this is the middle of the night. Mans cannot sleep. But Haman is out there. Why is Haman out there? Haman is out there because he was waiting for dawn to tell the king to kill Mordecai. Haman was waiting for a day to break. And that's why that man is literally before the king at an ungodly hour. Okay? He says, bring Haman in. Before Haman can say a word, he says, how do I honor the person that I desire to honor? What would you want if you were the person that I was supposed to honor? Haman, being Haman, goes, oh, me? I would want to wear the clothes that you wear on the horse that you ride with your crown. And I would want everybody to say, this is the person that the king decides to honor, delights to honor or desires to honor. And the king goes, oh, okay. And then Haman goes, I want a feast. I want this. I want this. I want that. Right? Basically, right? Haman's like, oh, me? You want to honor me again? Oh my God. And Haman says all of these things and he goes, oh, thank you so much for your advice. Go do that to Mordecai and leave nothing out. And so at the very, after getting to the palace to get this guy, <laughs> to get this man's dead, because the king had stumbled upon his name in the court records after not being able to fall asleep, Strange request after strange request after strange shenanigans. He finds himself having to honor the guy he was trying to kill. At this point, it is comical. This is comical, okay? But the pivot point is not human action. And we see here that the plan of God makes it one step before Haman. And Haman has to proclaim to Mordecai. He has to process Mordecai through the streets. And he goes, this is what is done for the man whom the king decides to honor. And then he runs home, tailing between his legs, like, not me. Look what happened to me today. And the wife goes, the wife and his wise men go, they predict this man is going to be your downfall, man. It's comical, dramatic irony. You can almost make this into a satirical play. Like it's something straight out of Shakespeare. I, I, I imagine Merchant of Venice when I read this because it's like, that is exactly what it reminds me of. You know, it's just dramatic, comical. And what is so interesting is that Haman's plan coming in contact with the plan of God is comical. You know when you try your best, your stinking best to get your way, and you end up in square one just like Jonah, right? You run away from God only to get swallowed by fish. You're three days, you're like, oh my God, thank you, Jesus. And he spits you back out, and you're literally right like the very spot where you started. And you're like, ah, here I am back again. And it's almost comical. When our plans try to thwart the plan of God, and fails. The genre here is comedy. 
you might wonder, well, why is Haman going through this? Like, I mean, yes, God loves Mordecai, but does not God love Haman? The thing about Haman is not that God doesn't love him. It's that Haman's will is directly at odds with God's will. God is not pushing him to do this. God is not pushing him to walk away from him. God is not pushing him to do contrary to the will of God. It is Haman's decision to fight God himself in order to get his way. Because yes, his maniacal need for power and authority, it comes from a fragile ego. But what it grows into is this monstrous idolatry of himself. I know it's only 1224, but what does this mean for us? This application is very important. This application is extremely important. And so I just want to, I am speeding it up a little bit because I don't know when that thing is going to be, but what does this mean for us? When we step into our identity with Christ instead of what we want, the first thing is that God brings out what he has made us to be. You have to see Esther was paper thin before she became what God wanted her to be. When she was trying to do her own thing, she was limited. Back when I was trying to do my own thing, I was limited. But when we step into our identity with Christ instead of what we want, God brings out our complexity and what he has made us to be. God knows you better than you know yourself. You think that this is a thing that you can do? You think this is your limit? God, this is what I have to do today. My energy is limited. My time is limited. This is all I have. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I have for my season. That's my limit. Ask God. Consult God. Did you consult God about your opinion of yourself and your limits and your will? Or are you basing your day and your limitations and what you're willing to give off of your image of yourself. Yes, it's good to know your limits, but have you consulted God for his plan for you? Think about it, okay? Because when we just pursue what we want, that's all we amount to. But Esther was made to be a queen. In the eyes of others, she's somebody that is humiliated. In the eyes of some, she's somebody that has completely degraded and left the Lord. In God's eyes, she was a queen. In the eyes of her uncle's friends, she's an orphan. In the eyes of the first generation, she's a clueless second generation believer that has walked away from God. In God's eyes, she was the future queen of Persia. And we see she is so tactful, so smart, so wise in the way that she talks to her husband. Brilliant. Because God knew her. Even when she didn't believe in herself, even when others didn't think much of her, God knew her. God knows you. God doesn't judge you based off of your pains, God doesn't judge you based off of your weaknesses. God doesn't judge you based off the chip of your shoulder. God does not judge you based off of your sins. God knows you as the person he's created you to be. And that is why it's important for us to not look at just what we want to do, but walk into what God has for us. Do you want your life to be here or do you want death? Do you want to actually become the woman and the man of God that God has for you? Listen to him. Listen to him. 
You're not going to get there on your own. That's the reality. You're not going to get there on your own. The second thing is the providence of God. As we align ourselves to God's will, we can be confident in his hand behind us. Consider how God has guided and directed your life. How did you come to get the job that you have? How did you come to meet the woman or the man of your life? How did you come to be in the position that you are in today? How did you come to have your friends? How did you come to have your family? How did you come to be a part of North Boston? Why are you living in the place that you are living? What circumstances led you to this point? God's care and protection does not just come in mighty miracles, but it comes in the unfolding coincidences of every day. When we ask God to light our footsteps, the reality is that what we're asking for the Lord is clarity in what he is doing. Because he has never stopped leading you. Think about it. The great pivot action here is God's will over your life. The pivot point here is not human action. It's God's plan that makes it one step above everyone else's. One step above Esther's, one step above Mordecai's, one step above Xerxes, and one step above Haman's. God is always ahead of us. What are you banking on? It's the NBA playoffs right now. A lot of people are making their bets about who will win and who will not. There's a pot going on back at home. What do you bet on? Your plans? Your predictions? What are you betting on? Of course, not all of life's circumstances are pleasant. Tragedies occur when in God's providence, somebody is at the wrong place at the wrong time. Life circumstances can be tragic, ugly, destructive, like this very plot to commit genocide. The death of a loved one, serious illness, wayward children, broken relationships, shattered dreams. All of these things are not good in and of itself. But even in the worst of life circumstances, God is working to fulfill his perfect promises for you. The pivot point we might think that it's Esther's courage, Mordecai's honor, Haman's folly. The pivot point of Esther is God's providence. The word God is not mentioned once in this book. And all you see is God. All you see is the hand of God over these people's lives. But God is not mentioned once. That's God. He doesn't need you to always honor him. You might not always be looking in the right direction, but God is always moving in your life. Even what the enemy means for evil, he is turning that actively for your good. Right now, God's plans are not just in the big, but they're in the little. It's the tiny things that he puts in your way that leads you to the bigger. So look at him. Why base your identity off of what you can offer? Why base your identity off of what you want, off of the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, off of whatever dreams and hopes you have? 
Nothing on earth stands against God's will for you. And he knows you better than you know yourself. I'm not saying to bet on this man that doesn't care about you. God loves you so much. And he has never stopped being on your team. Even when you don't think he's there. Even when you think he's deserted you. In the good, the bad, the ugly, the confusing. God is there. The reversal of destiny that began when the king had a sleepless night implies that despite their sin, despite their location away from Jerusalem, God's promise to Israel made at the beginning of their nation still stood. Let's think about that, that God is still fulfilling Abraham and Esther. Abraham is 1,400 years, 1,500 years before the time of Esther. 2,200 BC, 2,000 to 2,200 BC. And this is happening between 600 to 500 BCE. Do you see God is still fulfilling what he had promised to Abraham right now? You know why? Because the greatest pivot point is not Cersei's not being able to sleep. The greatest pivot point that God is building in these small little steps, a king not being able to sleep at night, this one guy coming up to the, 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 the courtyard at the wrong time, this one sentence being read, Mordecai, one guy sitting at the king's gate, barely able to enter into the palace, the Jews exiled, all of these little things that you might think are tragic, catastrophic, they are all steps to what? What does it lead to 500 years later? What does it lead to? The greatest pivot point in history is Jesus Christ. When I tell you that we think so small in months, maybe in years, maybe in yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But God is thinking thousands and thousands and thousands of years of redemption for you and I. That the right American white Presbyterian missionaries entered into the right time in the capital of what is now North Korea 100 years ago, 115 years ago. And a revival broke out and hundreds of thousands of people were coming to Jesus just so that we can be worshiping here. That when all else was failed and God's people were marginalized in this country for hundreds of years, God had a plan to get to this point in history at this time. We are part of God's plan. Do not be shocked by God's comical timing that you missed the main event. What God has for us is Christ. You might pray for relief. You might pray for breakthrough. What God has for you is relationship. What God has for you is redemption, glory, intimacy with him because he loves you. Because God demonstrated his love for us. And in that greatest pivot point, it wasn't a coincidence. God willingly showed up to his gallows. 
we see here a broken Haman, a fragile Haman that's about to die. But God showed up at his gallows so that you and I wouldn't die. It was not against his will. It was not contrary to his character. The greatest display of love that God has ever given is not this king not being able to sleep. It's Jesus stooping himself down from kingship to servanthood and willingly hanging on a cross for you and I. So that in our greatest moments of sin, in our greatest moments of confusion, while we have no idea where our life is headed, Jesus would be our assurance and our hope. When you are at your lowest, remember the cross. Remember the ways that tiny miracles God is constantly directing your steps. Remember that when you step into your identity with Christ off of that crazy love, you will be so much bigger, so much different than what you had for yourself. I tell you guys every week, I am living in such crazy times in my own life. I cannot believe of where I am right now. Every day that I live, I'm like, holy moly. Had I just paid attention to my plans, you and I would not know each other and I would be a corporate lawyer, someone's, someone's lawyer out of Manhattan. And yet, God has taken me out of being a fisherman and he has made me a fisher of men. And we are all called to discipleship, to be Christ's disciples, not one another's disciples, Christ's disciples. Previously in Israel's history, God had used mighty miracles to deliver his people and fulfill his promises. In the story of Esther, God was using the ordinary events of life to realize his covenant promises to his people. He used even seemingly insignificant offense, events such as the king's sleepless night and the decisions of less than perfect people to fulfill nevertheless the promises of his ancient covenant. What does that mean for you? Where do you stand in light of God's promises over your life? What do you believe to be your pivot point? What do you believe to be the basis of your identity and your purpose? Here, off of one, four coincidences, the, his, the course of the fate of the Jews change. But in our lives, our destiny has been reversed by Christ. And yeah, this world sucks and you will go through terrible things. And yes, you will not be perfect and you will not always make the right decisions. You will not always make the right commitments. You will not always act in nobility and honor. And you have every power and authority given to you to come before the throne of grace this Sunday and say, God, I am loved by you. Wretched body that I am, who will save me from this life of sin? Praise be to God, Romans 7. You have every right to approach him this Sunday, call him Abba Father, 
He completely and wholly forgives you every morning. His mercies, his blessings are new to you every morning. And that is not a feel good joy for you to be like, yes, God loves me. Step into his purpose for you. Step into his identity for you. Do not settle for paper thin. Be willing to explore what God has for your life. But Jane, all the security, screw it. Honestly, screw it. Do you not see me? I have no idea how I'm even living in Boston. Day by day, God provides for me. Let's all walk on water, shall we? Because even if it's water, if it is the wills, if it is the will of the Lord beneath our feet, water will become the sturdiest ground that you have ever walked before. Let's take this moment to pray. What is your pivot point? What are you willing to accept about God's plan over your life? Some of us are more prone to faith. Some of us are less prone to faith. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Are you at a point where you're willing to accept what he has for you? Maybe you're less than perfect. Sometimes, guys, I find that we get so discouraged by our own limitations and our own selves that we, <laughs> we do this thing where we're like, ah, screw it. And we just kind of like avoid God. Look, you don't need to do that. He doesn't see you for your worst. He sees you with love with pride and joy. You are his delight. Even when you have not been a perfect Christian in this quarantine, even when you have not been in a good place, you are his delight. And God has so many good things in store for you. And he loves you just the way you are. So you can call him Abba with me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to you. Be confident. Ask him with confidence. You don't need to strive to be heard by God. Be, ask him with confidence. God, what do you have for me? Dare to step into what he has for you. Dare to believe his plans for your life. Dare to believe that he keeps his promises through less than perfect people, through the mundane and the miraculous. Remember that the greatest miracle is the cross and that that will never be reversed, ever. How cliche does that sound? And yet, that is our happily ever after. So approach him, don't hesitate. Don't live your life for silly things. It's not worth it. Stop walking away from God on a whim. Ask yourself, where am I with God today? Approach him and his plans for you. Let's take this moment to pray. Abba, we just pray. 
from wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.